Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Kajiana Ward. Ramsay Campbell once said about Shirley Jackson, I know of no other writer in the field who conveys paranoia and spectral dread with more delicacy than she. Who else could terrify with the sight of a picnic on a lawn? Stephen King, Andrew Michael Hurley, Sarah Lotz, Paul Tremblay, Joe Hill and Richard Matheson have all cited her as inspirations. Adding another name to this eminent list, we have with us tonight the lovely Katrina Ward, whose book Little Eve was described by Joanne Harris as magnificent with shades of Shirley Jackson. So we thought she'd be a brilliant person to have back on our podcast to talk about Shirley. Hello, Katrina. Hi, hello. Hey, for those listeners who might not have listened to our previous discussion with you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work, please? Sure. Yes. Um, so I have written two novels, one a haunted house um, story called Raw Blood, which came out in 2015, which won the um, August Derleth Prize at the British Fantasy Awards. And then Little Eve, which is a, uh, how would I best describe? Ah, so Little Eve is about a troubled young woman who may or may not have murdered her entire family on a Scottish island in a nature-worshipping cult on New Year's Eve 1920. Um, and very weirdly, I don't know what the universe is telling us. I don't know whether Shirley herself has intervened and moved events around. But tonight, Little Eve got, was nominated for the Shirley Jackson Awards. Congratulations, that is an amazing achievement. But isn't that weird, though? It is perfect. The stars have aligned. (laughs) They really have. I thought it was so strange, like such alchemy. I don't know. Anyway, basically, very pleased to be here. Excellent. And we are pleased to have you because both Megan and I were very big Shirley Jackson fans and we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. So let's start off with a first question. Why do you think that Shirley Jackson is classed as a horror author when there's very little blood or supernatural elements to her work? What is it about her writing that brings her into this genre? Now, obviously, The Haunting of Hill House is very topical at the moment with the Netflix series. And I've read that um, a couple of times recently, once before I watched the series and once just recently in preparation for this. And that has an awful lot of supernatural elements in it, although arguably um, it could be manifestations of their will. I know that was one of the things that Shirley Jackson cited as an inspiration. But reading her other stuff like The Sundial and The Lottery and Hangs a Man and the other ones that you guys have read as well, there isn't a huge amount of what I would call horror in it or what we would traditionally think of as horror. So what is it you think within Shirley's novels or short stories that really he brings her within the genre? Can I quote Please? Buffy? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a bit of a... Definitely, a, a, let's do that. <laughs> uh, so for me, uh, as Buffy would say, she makes me feel all ugly. And I think that's how I'd describe Shirley Jackson, and that's why she's a horror writer to me, is just that she just... Ugly! <laughs> it's creepy and ugh! <laughs> I think that's, like, a perfectly brilliant description of exactly how she makes you feel. I also think that, like... In a way, she she makes a case for the only rational reaction to normal life being horror or mental illness. 
So she makes normal life so intolerable, like the accretion of objects, which I know that we're going to talk about in a bit, but like the accretion of detail in her stories. So the buildup of like just just the minutiae of daily things. It becomes so oppressive and it becomes more alarming and 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 set into such relief in a way that normally only horror is. So she makes the ordinary awful and makes a case for the fact that actually perhaps it is perhaps all you know all of her heroines have um are either are either on or on or near uh, either over or near the edge of madness in some way or another it seems like in in the universe she creates that that's the rational response to being alive like the insane ones are the are the sane ones the ones who have any any real sentience are the people who actually go mad at the reality of being alive, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And I mean, if Megan is going to steal Buffy quotes, then I'm going to steal one from Joe Hill, which I think summed it up really well. Nothing is more terrifying than being betrayed by your own senses and psyche. All the characters in every single book, what connects them is that they have delusions or fantasies and they fantasize about what might happen if they did this if they took this really violent course of action or they're deluded about what happens when they're walking out in the garden and mist suddenly descends and there's an element there of is this actually their mind or is the world conspiring against them um but as things go on this these delusions if they are delusions or supernatural elements tend to get more and more pronounced and it's pretty much the characters start off relatively sane and then we follow them being devoured either by their own illusions or by whatever supernatural elements are at play. And I think the wonderful thing about Shirley Jackson and perhaps the thing that sets you apart from other horror writers is you get to the end and you're really not sure which it was. Was it in their heads all the time or was it something acting outside of their influence? And I think although The Haunting of Hill House is obviously more horror, having read The Sundial, which is basically a, group, a family group who one of the members of the family after a death sees a ghost of her father and her father goes, there is a terrible cataclysm coming and you must all stay in the house and I will protect you if you stay within the house. Mm. So the whole plot of the sundial is basically this upper class family pulling together all of the things they need, including gin and tonics um, and various books and things vital, that they need to survive. Vital gin and tonics, yeah. <laughs> gin and tonics and a Boy Scout handbook is what they, they seem to focus on. And you really don't know if this woman, Aunt Fanny, who has seen her father, is telling the truth, whether maybe she's had a little bit of a delusion, maybe there's some truth in it. And you do actually see some of the things that he's prophesied coming to pass. And yeah. the book just ends all of a sudden. And again, we're obviously going to talk about this later on, but you kind of get to the end and you, you are just left wondering, more so than if you said have a happy ending or one where it's resolved. You would just close the book and that would be it. But I think because she sort of abruptly ends and you d still don't know whether they're making these things up, it, it stays with you. But I think that's part of what Shirley Jackson is about and what makes her so scary is that kind of not knowing and you never know even by the end you still don't know and because you then question yourself as like when you're reading it just as the characters themselves are questioning it I think that's what's so terrifying and to me yeah, that's right like the not knowing and and but still being uh, kind of hooked and really driven you really want to know but you know that you're never gonna know that's what's so scary 
isn't that interesting as well? Because what she also does is she makes you complicit as a spectator, kind of gripped in this kind of cruel theatre of of um, of of, um, of mental illness and and slow descent into madness. She makes you part of of the of of the punishment of the problem as well, which I think is part of the mechanism of the novels. So you do have that sort of terrible sense of kind of not only identity like identifying with the with with the character like this could be me but also a sense of kind of being gripped in a almost unhealthy way by what's happening to them yeah i i also i think um we might touch on it later but as well i think one of the really wonderful things is is the way that she gives us characters who are kind some particularly in um we have always lived in the castle but characters who have done terrible, terrible things, and you kind of, you're really on board with what they've done. You are, yeah. She makes you yeah. identify with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And absolutely. like, but root for them, even like. Absolutely, you're like, you do your murdering, girl. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you do you. I'm not really sure I was there with the you do it, but I was kind of like, oh, okay, fair enough. I, I, maybe they deserved it. <laughs> Certainly in the castle where you don't actually see it happen. Yes. Yeah. Which is part of the sort of part of the sort of like sly sleight of hand that makes it acceptable, you know. So before we get into too much detail, I kind of have to ask, everybody has a, a favourite book of an author, which for each of you would you say is the standout work, either short story or novel that you really enjoyed the most? Um, I, for me, it is We Have Always Lived in the Castle. That's, I mean, it's, it's so consummate and the narrative voice is amazing and uh, uh, so unique and strange. I don't even feel like it's, I feel like it, it transcends writing really at times. It's almost like you're being directly channeled into this, some strange netherworld of someone else's mind. It's, it's a, a, such a, an incredibly powerful piece of, um, piece of art. Um, and Marikette Blackwood is like, I mean, there's never been her like, and I don't know if there will be again. I have to just echo everything Katrina said. I, absolutely love that book and it was also my introduction to Shirley Jackson and completely out of nowhere I just happened to be wandering in a bookstore on holiday and just saw it on a table and went hmm that sounds interesting read it and like my mind was blown I it is now one of my all-time favorite novels I think it is absolutely I feel like it's not even a book in a way I feel like it's a sort of portal yes do you know what I mean? Like it, it, it doesn't really do what writing is supposed to do. It's not a. It doesn't feel constructed. Just, I don't know. If, if you're a person who resonates with it, if you're, you just you start reading it and you're drawn in to such a degree in such an immersive way, you don't often find um, possible with, with with the written word. You know, with fiction. Now, you see, I'm I'm torn because most other things like Stephen King got a definite favourite. M.R. James, again, definite favourites there. But I really struggle with Shirley Jackson. I know what you mean about Castle. Uh, we have always lived in the castle. It's just so perfect. And I, it starts perfectly, ends perfectly. And it's a wonderful build up. But I don't know. I, I'm not 
necessarily sure I would call it my favorite I think they all have different things going for them I as a horror author I really like the extra supernatural elements within the haunting of hill house which you obviously don't get mm. in the other ones and I know that um there is more sort of character and interplay and and everything within um we've always lived in the castle but I do have quite a soft spot for the haunting of hill house but again the sundial which I read is I just keep thinking about it and I, I find myself looking out at the weather when it's a bit rainy and wondering if it's going to be like it is in the book. So, you know, that one has had the more lasting question for me. I feel like the sundial is less is less well known than the others. So can you give us like a really quick potted sundial, if you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So okay. um, the sundial, like I said, doesn't really have it has a ghost in it, but sure. we only have a ghost be- bearing in mind that it's reported that Aunt Fanny has seen this ghost. Okay. So it centers around a house, the house of Mrs. Halloran and Mr. Halloran. Uh, they are the sort of the elder generation and Aunt Fanny is Mr. Halloran's sister. Um, and their son Lionel has just died. And you come into it when they're all just coming back from the funeral. And Lionel's wife, uh, widow, sorry, <laughs> Mary Jane is, um, she's not the nicest of people and she's clearly a hypochondriac and has asthma Oh, you can't see air quotes, can you? <laughs> when we're speaking in a podcast. But she, yeah, she's, she tends to avoid situations. And in contrast, Mrs. Haller and the older lady is very much, you know, heads towards them. And then you have Aunt Fanny, who was seen as, to begin with, a very much weaker character. But then when she happens to encounter her dead father as a ghost next to the sundial, he gives her this message that I mentioned earlier about how this apocalypse is coming. Um, the mm. father will protect his children, but you must stay within the house. She then goes back and reports on it. But the trouble is you don't actually see what Aunt Fanny's father says to her. You mm. just reported. So, again, you've got this whole Shirley Jackson thing of is it in her head? Is it? Did it right. really happen? And you're with Aunt Fanny when she's in the garden and experiences something quite frightening. But, again, it could all just be, you know, within the, her own head. Female hysteria. Mm-hmm. Good old but fashioned female yes. hysteria. <laughs> there's also an element to the book of kind of wondering if Aunt Fanny has made it up so that she can have this position of power because Mrs. Halloran is about to kick everybody out. Oh God, um, so that's why she's so good. That's how that's exactly why she's so good. It's because that it's got that added dimension to it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's got I mean there's there's elements of all the books that are summed up in the sundial. And then it's really weird because like I say, it's not really a, a ghost story or horror story, but it has this overarching theme of the apocalypse is coming and they go off into the village and they get all the stuff they need and they invite all the villagers for a party and the idea is that they say well you know it's it's one last thing to to really show our support for them and then Mrs Halloran says partway through oh this is how I want to remember them as being happy and it's like well it's clearly not for them is it it's for you to make you feel better when you abandon them all to the apocalypse and there's just such wonderful play and and power play between all the characters um and it's just it's just amazing and i don't want to spoil what happens um yeah but it is if you haven't read it and you like i i wouldn't not even if you like shirley jackson just if you like this sort of group story and yeah. like i say the power play between the characters and if you like stately homes because you pretty much get a tour of the inside of the stately home <laughs> and there is a very mad little girl as well called fancy who is just oh if you like Mary fancy i I know that's the best name for a mad little girl i've (laughs) ever heard (laughs) but but if you like mary cat you will love fancy oh wow okay well you've sold me on that (laughs) 
So we've all got our favourites, but in a lot of her work, whatever your favourite happens to be, Jackson tends to feature women living alone or in ways that society doesn't really approve of. Why do you think that is? And what does her work actually say about these women? She's got, she's definitely, she's got a lot to say about the, and I think what I was saying earlier about the accretion of objects and the accretion of daily detail is part of this. There's a sort of, there's a real sense of the oppression of circumstance if you're female. And if you posit women who are, who refuse that um, conventional um, position in the Venn diagram, which she does um, quite often. We have always lived in the castle and in advance as well. Perfect examples. It's a discussion of the dangers and of the, actually, which is less discussed, the rewards of what comes with those, with, with, with that, um, with that refusal of, um, of, of a more conventional position. Like, I think that one there's something which I think is not enough discussed about Shirley Jackson, which is how funny she is. Do you know, I've just a second written down humour to remind me to talk about that. But yeah, she's go on. so funny. There's this bit. OK, so I've highlighted this bit in Haunting of Hill House. I'm not going to read it all, but it's the moment where Theo and Eleanor meet each other. And you've literally just had that whole sequence of events, the bit that actually that um, things like Cabin in the Woods make fun of, where you literally have along the road to Hill House 37,000 things which should make you turn back. The old gatekeeper, you know, the unfriendly townsman, the luring, the luring furs that lean over the drive, the dreadful house. And she meets Theo. And then they have this absolutely delightful conversation where they're making fun of each other and also have, just have this instant warm chemistry where they're talking about, um, where they're asking each other about their childhoods and, and, and finding commonalities in the absurdities that families have. So she goes, um, Eleanor tossed a, a pebble into the brook and watched it sink clearly to the bottom. Did you have a lot of uncles? Thousands. <laughs> Do you? After a minute, Eleanor said, yeah, yes, big ones and little ones and fat ones and thin ones. What well, did you have an Aunt Edna? I had an Aunt Muriel. Kind of thin, rimless glasses. No, she had a garnet brooch, Eleanor said. And they go on like this, just this really light, it's almost Noel Coward-esque banter, which is so beautiful. It's very, very funny. And it also brings me on to another thing which is she's so good at relationships between women it's very very often that you know they're described as sort of like mordant and dark and symbiotic and incestuous actually she's really good she passes the Bechdel test no no problems you know all (laughs) colors flying she's hilarious like this conversation in particular if you know if you don't remember it I, I would just that that bit in the in this novel never gets enough press in my opinion it's the bit before it all turns dark it's another bit just before eleanor is offered another chance to leave because obviously eleanor is continually offered chances to leave uh, or chances to avert her dreadful fate but this one it's almost like there's a sort of dialogue going on where is it that the horror creates um, 
the awfulness and the horror is the factor? Or is it that actually it has to sit alongside this kind of life-affirming um, bit of, you know, bit of real interaction? There's this sort of sense that the two inform each other because it literally comes straight after this interaction. They see a dark shadow moving across the hillside. And there's something about the, that that proximity that makes suggests to me that, there's a kind of uniform, not uniformity, but there's a kind of unity to the horror and the joy. Um, and that even at this early in the novel, she's positing that. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Sorry. We all agree wholeheartedly. We do. Excellent. <laughs> well, I think that if you don't have the kind of the joy and the the humour then the darkness and, and it just doesn't have the same effect because, it, I, okay, this is where I'm going to get into my philosophy here. Um, and I'm a nerd, but there's a, a thought experiment by a philosopher in the 70s, Robert Nozick, about um, a machine that, you know, you could potentially plug yourself into and only experience things that are pleasurable for the rest of your life. And the idea being that, if you only ever experience these pleasurable things, you stop take you know you start taking them for granted. You don't understand what pleasure really is because you don't know the darkness. And I think you know the the flip side is true that the you know the only way that Jackson can really make us feel terrified and feel really kind of on the edge of our seat is by showing us the joy, showing us the the normalcy and the kind of the things that they are losing as they become more embroiled in whatever's happening within Hill House. Well, I think there's um, an element, uh, we were talking earlier about delusions and the um, fantasy, because I'd just like to say that Katrina has summed it up beautifully with Noel Coward. I think that was the, the analogy I was looking for for the sundial. It is that kind of banter. And she talks, Katrina was talking about the bit of the book where they talk about uncles and aunts and things. But there's also that bit where the four of them are sitting in the library and they're talking about their lives and they're just making up random things like Theo is a princess and um, uh, Nell is a courtesan. And to begin with, when you have that really long journey, I know that um, Katrina was saying about all these things about how she has to turn back and whatever. But if you go a little bit further back than that, when Nell is actually driving there and she has all these fantasies, she fantasizes about the house with the stone lions and she fantasizes about a a big field that has the place where she has lunch. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. And all these little things. And I think the fantasy and the the banter and the make-believe are all the banter and the humor is kind of woven in this idea that they're taking it quite lightly and they are um, all being quite joyful but at the same time they are twisting reality and they're lying to each other and there's something quite sinister in that and yeah it's all a bit of fun but very quickly that turns into to not being fun yeah I suppose that's it isn't it that's that dichotomy that she she walks that line so 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 neatly between it being um, yeah, lying to each other and also kind of really pleasurable and really the freedom of fantasy. And particularly with reference to being a woman, that, that has particular resonance, doesn't it? Because there's a sort of, there's a particularly feminine quality and particularly in Haunting of Hill House um, that, that fantasy has, which is wish fulfillment and escapism and escape from her allotted role. 
So fantasy treads that dangerous edge, doesn't it? It does. And I think it also feeds into what you were saying about the dangers and rewards and brings us back to the question we were talking about is what does Jackson's work say about these women? And Eleanor has this whole... I kind of really struggle with The Haunting of Hill House and this whole issue that we don't know anything about Eleanor's prior life. And in none of the other books does it really matter so much. It's vaguely alluded to. But with Eleanor, I think the key question is, when she comes to Hill House, she obviously has the danger of Hill House, but it's also, as Katrina says, a reward. It is her reward for slaving away over her mother's bedside and it is the freedom that she has always wanted and that freedom that ultimate freedom is obviously linked in with her ultimate fate which isn't so pleasant it then leads to this question that Nell is telling so many fantasy stories you're never and fantasizes so much on the way there and tells lies to everybody you're never really sure what she is telling is the truth and what happened beforehand so does she actually turn into her mother as part of Hill House? Is it that once she gets this freedom to be whoever she wants, what she actually turns out to be is her mother? Because there's that section with her and Theo where Nell says, oh, well, I'm going to come back with you. And Theo yeah. turns around and goes, why do you always go where you're not wanted? And she just sits there and smiles complacently. Well, I, I've always been unwanted. And there's a little mm-hmm. part of him that goes, is this really the true Nell coming out? Or is she always just her... Her, is she her mother's daughter and she's never had a chance to express it because her mother has always been there and has been the controlling and dominating and needy one and now suddenly Nell is free and all Nell wants to do is be like her mother and be a burden or is it a reflection of Hill House and the idea that once you get to Hill House you never let them go and because Nell obviously embodies Hill House so much before she makes the ultimate sacrifice and um, loses herself in Hill House and becomes so super alert to it. Before she does that, does she try and influence Theo and try to be Theo's Hill House of following her everywhere and not letting her go? And I think this is all kind of this whole idea of the comedy and the fantasy of role playing and pretending all these wonderful things suddenly goes darker and darker and darker Mm -hmm. to the point where Nell is going, well, I'm going to come with you and I'm going to follow you and we're going to have a house together. And that's just terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean that's what I find so so um incredibly impressive about the narrative voice is that it manages to completely inhabit Nell's consciousness while retaining these, you know, blurred lines. You're never quite sure who you're dealing with. Eleanor Vance, I think, is one of the greatest creations in modern literature. I think she's, I think it's sublime. She walks a knife edge just in the rendering of the consciousness with that level of uncertainty. And the third person, the inhabited third person is absolutely perfect. I don't don't know how she does it because it it never ceases to unnerve and it never lands on any point of certainty. And that's why it's a masterpiece. So... Yeah, it, I, I mean that—that that is that is, we don't know because we're not supposed to know, and that's what's frightening about it. Maybe more frightening than Hill House, really. While we're talking about now, I'd like to kind of expand it a little bit um, and say, what are your opinions of the protagonists within the various novels? I mean, I found them very flawed and, um, in some cases, unlikable. So, are they? so truly flawed as to be completely unlikable or is there even something about them that strikes a chord to you? I know we were discussing Merica earlier and the fact that even though she's a murderer we're all like, oh, she's kind of cute and it's, I it's love okay. I love her. <laughs> exactly, heart you. 
completely. I, yeah, I love her so much. I'm so glad we had this talk. So let's have a think of we've always lived in the castle. In the same way that I summarised the sundial, maybe one of you guys would like to summarise what happens in um, we have always lived in the castle. And then we can think of how unlikable all the different characters are, because I think there is truly a, a wide variety of unlikable creatures to, to pick from, really. One of my favourite kinds of stories has always been unreliable narrators. And, you know, I when I I still remember first reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart when I was in high school. Oh, yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. And ever since then, I've really, really enjoyed unreliable narratives. And I found that Mary Cat was both unreliable yet totally reliable. Well, that's what I was going to say. She's she's absolutely reliable in a way. Yeah, in a way. I I mean, I don't want us to get all Obi-Wan Kenobi and and say like, oh, well, you know, what I told you was the truth from a certain point of view. But... um, (laughs) She's okay, yeah. She's you, somehow. Are both. you trying to say you want me to summarize? <laughs> <laughs> if you think you can do it, do it. <laughs> okay, I'll give it a shot. Okay, so Merricat and Constance Blackwood live alone in a house with their uncle Julian. They're ostracized by the village because they believe that Constance poisoned the rest of the Blackwood family who died of arsenic poisoning. Constance was acquitted at trial. However. The suspicion remains over her head. Um, Merricat practices a form of black magic in order to uh, to uh, control events around her. Um, and in a purely Jackson-esque kind of way, it's not clear whether those um, whether these these uh, these acts um, influence anything or not. They may well do. Then there's the interloper, the cousin, the interfering cousin, I believe, who is named Charles, who comes in because he believes that the Blackwood gold is buried somewhere or hidden somewhere on the property. And Merricat has a habit of hiding lots of family possessions all around in a sort of totemic, um, paganistic way. So she'll bury five gold coins at the foot of a stile in, or hang a book from a tree in order to uh, to accomplish some end. So um, it's very possible that she's done that with all the wealth, which she doesn't realise. Anyway, cut a long story short. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the cousin is driven away and the villagers eventually descend on the uh, Blackwood house and they burn the roof off. But Merricat and Constance um, the, uh, continue to live inside the burned out kitchen and the villagers come almost come to uh, treat treat them as sort of witches but also as deities like they bring them food and lay offerings on their doorstep like pudding and, uh, and eggs and this it becomes actually almost like a, a, a paradisical ending um for the two sisters who only ever really wanted to be left alone um Sorry, I forgot a bit. An important bit is everyone thought Constance had poisoned them, but actually it turns out Mary Cat did. That's it. End of summary. <laughs> very well done. I thought the ending was was very good. I, I kind of felt when I was reading it that it was a urban legend in the making. Like so much of American literature is made up of the idea of the not the haunted house, but the house where some weird creepy person lives and you don't want to go up and knock on the door and all the kids you know run run up and ring the bell and then run away and it was really bizarre to kind of see see it from the urban legends point of view and to have the two girls at the end just looking out and seeing the kids run up and ring the bell and all the people leaving offerings and the two girls are just literally sitting there and as Katrina says they're really very happy (laughs) 
you know, despite obviously Constance trying to live a more normal life, at the end she seems to come around to Mary Cat's way of thinking. Um, but I mean, you've got Mary Cat, who is clearly the murderer. We all guessed it from the beginning, and then they have a short yes. sort of an interaction where they say it once, and and Constance kind of goes, "Was it you?" And she's like, "Yes, I put it in the sugar because you never had sugar, Constance." And there's just this wonderful moment where you kind of go oh she saved her sister and that's what sticks in your head rather than she killed her whole family and you just see such a caring nature and in a weird way because although Mary Cat would be completely unlikable it's the fact that Constance cares for her so much and you can see that Constance is a truly good person that you kind of go well Mary Cat can't be that bad if Constance likes her but I think that's a, that's an amazing point it makes about you know, there's a sort of um, a pure morality that comes with love that doesn't wreck with the with the actual personalities. Like, love in itself has its own valency, and that's respected in Shirley Jackson's works. I would say, like, it doesn't matter who it's between. And actually, there's no moral there's no moral requirement really for it. It has its own it has its own innate value. Absolutely. And it is the love that redeems this truly wicked character of America and makes her seem more relatable than Cousin Charles, who, let's face it, his only real money, vice. Money, money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you compare that against poisoning your whole family with arsenic in the sugar, it, it kind of, it's, you kind of get this little that bad. And yet by the end of it, you're like, oh, thank God he's gone. He's really horrible. He is horrible. I would like to take a moment, though. To, I know we all know this, but I would like to take a moment just to remind ourselves of how much harsher female, you know, antiheroes are judged than male antiheroes. You know, there's, there's a sort of onus, I think, on women to behave well in literature and in life um and you know that the joy that people take in a ripley anti-hero isn't necessarily the same as the one or at least there's a little more judgment or a little more complexity in their feelings about someone in a shirley jackson novel and i i i think that that's that's definitely got you know got some gender expectations on it and I, I, you know, I, I think it's something to bear in mind. Like, would we be as hard on Mary Cat and Constance or would we be just a little bit more tolerant? As in all the Patricia Highsmith novels are like bestsellers. Like, I don't know. Well, I kind of feel that Shirley Jackson steals, steers away from the main issue where women tend to be seen as being villains which is in motherhood or perhaps with sex so there is no relationships that I can think of particularly within her work where it deals with husbands and wives except for in the sundial where it's um yeah it, it, it's not great um but it's also a very minor part of the story and even in that it's very very ambiguous at one moment Mrs Halloran is being truly awful to her husband and the next moment she's kindly feeding him eggs and and being nice to him and it's it's definitely very more ambiguous it's not the sort of the straight up like Katrina's saying where the husband wife relationship can is the the good the good and the evil or whatever you want to, mm. to do to characterize your your heroine and I think by making Mary Cat and Constance sisters there is certainly a different bond there than to one you would get with mother and daughter and it it does change the dynamics a lot. And again, in The Haunting of Hill House, there is no familial ties. And just briefly touching on the Netflix series, I think one of the things that 
slightly disappoints me about it, I think, is this whole issue that they bring in motherhood again. And listeners to this podcast will know that I have a real trouble with the Game of Thrones series, which basically puts all of uh, Cersei's issues in relation to motherhood, whereas actually in the book, she's just a psycho. And it's like, you know, well, women can be psycho. Let her be a psycho. Yeah, exactly. Why do you have to justify it with motherhood? And I think that's something that Shirley Jackson neatly sidesteps by just not having those kind of relationships in it. Although I have Interesting enough, she was a mother. Like, you know, so it's an interesting omission on her part, isn't it? Yeah. That is true. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've got published recently has been about killer mothers so i'm not really sure what that says about my my tone of writing See, for me as as a as as a single woman with no children i find it almost quite relaxing that there's a female driven you know canon just talking about shirley jackson as a sort of single-handed canon that doesn't deal with that because i find there's so little stuff that doesn't deal with women who don't have or don't want to have children and yes. for whom that, that isn't a central driving force. Yep. A hundred percent agree. So for me, that I think that's a strength. Absolutely. And I, I think it's a strength that she keeps away from not even having that interpretation within her novels. So there's no chance that anyone might try to misconstrue the relationship of husband and wife or mother and daughter and you know, say, oh, well, actually, the whole of Hill House is about, it's like, no, it's about four strangers coming together and either getting on or not getting on and conflicts and getting together. So if we could just move on to the haunting of Hill House for a moment. I mean, what are your opinions on those protagonists? We've all decided that we really like Mary Cat from, <laughs> from We've All Lived in the Castle. But if you had to pick a favourite at the haunting of Hill House, which of the characters would be your favourite, do you think? Or perhaps, maybe favourite's the wrong word, which one would you relate to more? Oh, Eleanor, for sure. She's yeah. the most fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Katrina and I need to get out of each other's brains. Um, <laughs> or maybe just go for a drink. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> but yeah, totally Eleanor. So obviously we decided that Nell is our favourite in Hill House for all sorts of different reasons. Um, But I mean, what do you think of the other characters? So I always really struggle with Theo because she's just so two-faced. One moment she's really nice and then one moment she's really bitchy. And on rereading it, I have noticed that she and Nell play off each other. But I must admit, I just come away thinking Theo's really quite a bit of a bitch. What, What about you girls? What do you think of the other characters within The Haunting of Hill House? I mean, I would agree with you about Theo, but also that was kind of why I loved her because she was so real to me. I've met women like that. You know, I know people like that. And she was, uh, it just made her a fantastic character so that I kind of loved her for that. I also I also think there's a, there's a case to be made for Theo didn't necessarily know the stakes she was playing for. You yeah. Know? Theo doesn't know she's in a novel called The Haunting of Hill House. She's like a girl in a weird experimental thing, like figuring stuff out. I, I, I don't know. I always have a real soft spot for unlikable, so-called unlikable characters. And for me, there's, I don't know. I, I didn't think she was. It's interesting because people often feel more harshly towards Theo than they do towards the actual evil of Hill House, which is, which is a 
funny thing, because obviously the evil of Hill House kills people and Theo doesn't really. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I quite liked Theo because, again, to me, she's just a woman who wants to do her own thing. She doesn't make excuses for who she is. She's very kind of open about what she wants, how she wants to live her life. And that made me like her. And it also made her feel real. She is real. And so it's like a deliberate opposition. I think it's a really clever authorial thing that she that is done in that particular novel, which is that you know that someone is unlikable, but you're made to like them. And also in opposition to a huge greater thing, <laughs> which you're supposed to be fearing. Um, it's a, It's a good, like, it's a good tension. And I feel like we're supposed to like Theo, even though she's not you know technically that great i found the doctor and his wife interesting characters because you have kind of the doctor who's sort of presented like you know the scientific man and he's there to really you know go about this with a methodical attention to detail but at the same time he is basically saying i believe in ghosts supernatural weird shit happening right and then the wife comes along and she believes in it too, but in a completely different way. And then you suddenly do kind of fall into the tropes around women and hysterics and, oh, well, you know, she doesn't do it, the scientific method and all this kind of thing. But I find both of them quite ridiculous characters in that, you know, first that this guy is trying to do this very scientifically and, and then really doesn't have a scientific method to it at all because he constantly puts Eleanor down he doesn't listen to Eleanor and you know all that kind of thing but in both instances the people who are really there to believe in a haunting as such are kind of two of the most ridiculous characters that there are and it's also the fact that the two most ridiculous characters and the ones that definitely want to believe in the haunting are the two that don't necessarily experience it because at the beginning you've got Theo and Eleanor who are the two who experience it the most and they have this yeah. connection to Hill House that perhaps the Doctor and Luke don't have and I think part of it is Jackson's writing because there's a bit where Eleanor and Thea are experiencing the banging on the door and the, the extreme cold and the rattling of the doorknob and then when eventually Luke and the Doctor come back they say they've been chasing something in the garden like something dog-like ran down the corridor but that all happened off set so although they might experience the terror of Hill House it's not in this, you don't connect with them in the same way because you haven't lived through it with them the same way you have done Theo and uh, Eleanor. And mm. I obviously I think that's part of Jackson's writing, that she tends to bring the women to the foreground. And the men are still there and they're still strong characters. And, I mean, you're talking about Eleanor constantly getting threats to, sorry, warnings to leave. Mm. Those warnings, as she starts getting more connected with Hill House, those warnings become threats because it's actually the Doctor who sees, yeah. you know, all, all of them see, but the Doctor in particular keeps going, I will send you home. And it starts mm. from going to, oh, well, I can go home, to, oh, no, don't send me home. In a way, isn't it a sort of strange, inverted feminist kind of appropriation where <laughs> it's been a male space where the Doctor controls it and however creepy when Eleanor becomes part of Hill House, she becomes complete ownership. She has complete ownership of the space. And that's one of the, it seems like one of those brilliant inversions that Shirley Jackson excels at, which is that a sort of 
a triumph that is not triumph at all. Absolutely. And you've got Luke, who is constantly saying, oh, one day I'm going to own Hill House. Who would want to own Hill House? And then you have that in comparison to Nell, who thinks about it with horror to begin with, and then with a kind of longing. I think it's a kind of, it becomes a question of a sort of like, it becomes a sort of edifice of primogeniture in a way, doesn't it? That's why you have to have, that's why you have the presence of someone who's like an heir on site, because it's an edifice of of the opprobrious past, in a way. But again, because it's Shirley Jackson, not entirely, it's also something completely other. Well, I always found Luke being there as kind of, not the red herring, but it's he's in there to show that Eleanor's connection with Hill House transcends everything. If Hill House wanted to pick on someone, it's got its own air there. I mean, you talk about all the cranes and the little girls who were left there. And, you know, this direct descendant is there in the house and it's not him who's experiencing it. It is Nell. It kind of makes it even more impressive that she's connected in such a way because Luke is there. And theoretically, it should have been him. It should have been his story, you know, and how he's been haunted. You think about how many things you have in, in modern cinema and modern books about how it's all about bloodlines and everything mm. and even just watching I watched The Haunting with um, Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones mm. and everybody and in that they couldn't just have Eleanor turning up she had to be some long lost grand niece who turned up and had a connection to it and I'm like no mm. that's that's not what happens that's that's nothing mm. like it at all it's just the house exerts its influence over whoever happens to be there and is most receptive and in this case it's Nell Although you've yeah. got all that writing on the wall that says "Welcome home, Eleanor," so maybe there is some connection <laughs> that Jackson yeah. was hinting at. Yeah. Well, in terms of adaptation, I mean that adaptation was was closer in form to even you know the the current Netflix adaptation, which is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are various different things. I mean, I sat down. I've got like six pages of notes on the difference between all of them. But before we move <laughs> on to later adaptations, I just wanted to quickly think about um, something I read in a, a LitHub article where it posited that Jackson's work, A Safe House, is actually a trap. And I felt this was a fair assessment of her books because in Hill, well, perhaps except for Hill House, which is on on all aspects, it looks terrible and all the characters keep going, we mustn't stay here, this is a terrible house. But at the same time, it's also a safe house for, for Nell because it's an escape from her life. And in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, obviously the house plays a huge part because it is there and it is... But it's a Mary safe, house, safe house, house there. Yeah. It's the definition of a safe house in that yeah. world. Yeah. And again, in the sundial, of course, everybody has to stay inside the house. Um, because that's the only way that it will uh, avoid the apocalypse. So what do we think about this and this idea that the house is both on the one hand safe and at the other time incredibly deadly? I mean, I get what she means in terms of that the domestic is dangerous, but the, the actual structure of, of sort of the houses itself in the novels that I'm thinking of, even in, um, well, in The Bird's Nest, which we haven't really talked about, which I have read a bit of, um, that is that 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 uh, structures themselves are inherently dangerous. Like the first scene shows the office of the main character being bulldozed into by um, by by a wrecking ball. <laughs> so it's it, you know that that sets up the fact that you know certainties and um, and you know safe structures are not necessarily safe. <laughs> but 
I mean, I would say that in yeah, in those in those those two ones that we were talking about, they, that those those houses are are safe in the in the way that they're not safe. They are they are safe in the way that if you obey their rules, they are completely safe. No. That's very true because you've got all the rules from Mrs. Dudley that she lays out in The Haunting of Hill House. And then you were like you were saying with Mary Cat, you have all the rules there and she can't do this and she can't do that and she doesn't like to touch things and she has all of her little bits that she's buried and all her rituals there. Exactly. But also like in with Hill House, like actually even, you know, even being absorbed by Hill House isn't that in a way better and safer than than anything Eleanor had to live for in her previous life. I mean, that's the question. That's the question the novel's asking, isn't it? It is. Is is it better to have that freedom and stay with it to the ultimate end, or is it better to go back to the life that you disliked? But to go back, to yeah, go back to the sort of sort of mundane, sort of mundane kind of modern day servitude. I think it's also a comment on the idea of freedom and the idea of a trap, because you know, Eleanor whether or not she's being truthful about it, you know, she is kind of escaping and she sees the house as her freedom. And you could also say that Mary Cat and Constance, they want their freedom to be within the house. And sure. it's it's that kind of thing where is it freedom? Is it a trap? But it's how you define it. And if that's what you want and you choose that life then it can be free but it, it's it's kind of her commenting on what it means to be oppressed and that someone's kind of prison is another person's freedom yeah yeah that makes sense i mean we've touched on quite a few common themes within shirley jackson and i've got a list here so i was just gonna read through the themes that i identified feel free to throw in anything that you think i've missed but i wondered which you found most effective or most Jackson-esque, I suppose, because she is pretty much her own genre, really, I feel sometimes. So I found that food was a great big theme in Jackson, and it's something around which all the characters gravitate from, obviously, the deathly meal in um, We Have Always a Castle and all the different meals they have for Uncle Julian and the different things he has, to obviously went to Hill House and they all come together for dinner. Um, the particular type of abrupt ending with unanswered questions, which I haven't read anything so far of Shirley Jackson that doesn't end that way. The idea of crockery and home comforts playing a crucial, often grounding role for the protagonists. Nature and the outside obviously playing a big contrast to the house and the safety or trap, as we were talking about a moment ago. The inevitable buffoon character who thinks that they're in charge, but they're not. Again, cannot think of a Jackson novel I've read yet that hasn't, <laughs> hasn't had that in. The characters all have an anticipation of something huge coming. Um, and... Tensions between the village and the big house, um, particularly obviously in the castle and the sundial as well. And finally, how Jackson seems to weave words, lyrics and poetry into her work and how they have a very strong meaning to the protagonist. So you have obviously in Mary Cat, sorry, in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, the song that Mary Cat keeps repeating to herself. In Hill House, we have the idea of Theo naming Hill House repeatedly when she talks about it, almost if he's daring it. And this whole issue of um, journeys end in lovers meeting. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you find the most distinctive? And if you have to pick a a few themes of Shirley Jackson that you think work really well and stand out for you, any that I've just read out or, you know, any that you might have yourself. I think it's famously acknowledged that like the first paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House is a masterpiece in kind of um, uh, 
it, you know, the, the poetry of the words echoing the execution. There's a New York copy editor who has edited like some of the most famous people in the world. If you go, I can't remember his name, if you Google it, you'll see. He's, he says that this is the perfect encapsulation of an entire novel being expressed in the first paragraph of a novel. And I, I think what you were talking about, about Shirley Jackson's, um, um, you know, poetry and her lyricism, which I think is often forgotten in there's so many, so many kind of buzz, so many words that get applied to a text, aren't there, which sort of remain fixed, like kind of, you know, horror and um, suspenseful and um, mordant and cynical and all of these, whereas actually she, her writing is so beautiful and so economical. I'm not going to read you the beginning. Well, I kind of want to, but I won't. But I will. Do we have time? Do it. Okay, I'm going to do it. All right. So the the opening paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. I defy you to find a better opening paragraph in in the history of English literature. Well, what really gets me about Shirley Jackson's work, coming back to one of the other themes of abrupt endings, is that what you have read out is pretty much the exact last lines of the same book as well. Um, (laughs) And it's just literally Hill House itself, not sane, stood against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more and so on, pretty much what you said. But then it's the last little bit and the stone of Hill House and whatever walked there walked alone. Mm-hmm. And I really wonder what that says about the whole of Hill House, the book, and Eleanor's fate. Um, because obviously Eleanor dies in an effort not to leave Hill House. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go, well, it says whatever walked there walked alone. Does that mean either that Eleanor walks there and she walks alone and she's been cheated of her fate because she died to get company and to get home and is still on her own and still lonely and unhappy? Or is it that she died and Hill House hasn't let her in and it's just kind of walking there and walked alone? Or is it that she died and nothing happened and Hill House just continues? And there are so many ways you can look at this. Yeah, or, or is it that she has always walked there because time doesn't exist in Hill House and it was just waiting for her to walk there? Brilliant, yeah. Yeah, another yeah. interpretation. There is so many different ways. Mm. And it, it's it's just basically taking the perfect opening turning it into the perfect ending and then just throwing the whole of what has gone before into doubt as to whether it was worth it and whether it's a happy ending or not. Well, I mean, we don't want certainty in our uncanny literature, do we, really? No. No. We want doubt. That's the purpose of it, really. It's it's a sort of questioning of of what we believe about the afterlife and about our natures you know that's that's why that's why it's 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 a literature without without any neat answers 
it's something that's constantly questing and theorizing about who we are and what happens and that's you know Shirley Jackson perfectly epitomizes that well that kind of leads, leads me nicely on to think about one of our final questions which is about the Netflix adaptation that's currently um, very popular on the on the internet on streaming and it's hopefully lined up for a second season and I really enjoyed it I thought it was a good series but I wasn't really sure that it was Shirley Jackson and I think one of the reasons that I kind of felt that it missed the point really was that it didn't have the abrupt ending that you get in so many Jackson novels and it had this really sort of happily ever after for now ending to it where everybody was kind of okay and I was like that's that's not Jackson though and I think that's a, a big part of her work that was kind of missed out there, unfortunately. I thought there was a lot to like in this. Um, I thought it did well what, what horror should do in a lot of ways. I thought it was a shame that um, one of the greatest female-authored um, and female protagonist-led um, ghost stories of the 20th century was reframed as a story written by a man with a male protagonist. Um, I thought that was just a strange, unnecessary twist. And just as a bit, I mean, you know, whatever works best for the story, but it seemed like a strange choice to me. I thought some of it captured very well the hallucinatory quality of what The Haunting of Hill House does. I thought that the reframing at first of... Um, of you know the kind of Avengers assembled group at Hill House as a <laughs> as a family actually worked really well at first. Um, I don't know that it necessarily went where it needed to go. I really liked it. I I don't know that it was the haunting of Hill House though. I agree. I mean, I I really enjoyed it, and I think it was um, absolutely a really good scary series, and I thought it does very well what a lot of tv series do these days and personally i didn't like the family element from the beginning up because the whole point of hill house is it's disparate strangers all coming together and trying to find their feet and to find how they interact with each other and you just didn't have that in the netflix series um i agree with katrina that although i found the female characters very interesting and i thought they created some very memorable female characters when it came to the end the story was revolving around um, uh, the son, whose name I've temporarily forgotten, it's not Luke, it's the other son, and um, his dad. And the, the kind of the final scenes have them. And I'm like, well, again, that's that's not quite Hill House. But I must admit, one thing I did really like was the Cup of Stars, because it goes to this whole idea of rewards and traps and freedom and things like that. And it was very, very beautifully taken from that first journey that Eleanor takes to Hill House, isn't it? It is. And I think it very much represents the whole idea of um, domesticity and freedom combined with sort of rewards and traps and things like that. Um, because obviously, if you haven't seen the series and you would like to, I'll try not to spoiler it. But the final use of the Cup of Stars in the very end, when you see what happens in the Red Room, I thought it was a wonderful way of combining the idea of escape and freedom with also danger and a trap and I thought of anything that was really well done and the other one I liked was um, the episode with Nell's funeral 
where it panned around and it had a lot of really good cinematography and it panned around and every now and again you see Nell in the background and at the end it has that section where she goes you know I was standing sorry the flashback where she's standing as a child and saying it was terrible I was calling and calling and you just ignored me I thought that reflected really well the fact that in The Haunting of Hill House the novel when you get to the end they start talking over Nell and they start not listening mm. to her and it's very mm. similar to what they do what Nell and Theo do to Mrs Dudley when she's got this comedy bit at the beginning like all oh, I set the table at one and I always leave after I never stay over in darkness and yes. I, I can't hear you and this has this whole spiel worked out and when she says it to Eleanor he's like okay and then when she starts to say it to Nell and Theo when they're together the two girls just talk over her completely and ignore her and ignore these warnings which of course is a like Katrina was saying a trope but then it's reflected later when the other guests are all talking and Eleanor's saying stuff and they're just not listening to her or she's saying it so quietly she can't be heard. And I thought that was represented really nicely within the episode in the Netflix series with Nell's funeral where she's standing there and has been consumed by Hill House and now no one can hear her. I thought that was a really nice touch. I mean, I could have wished that they hadn't created a female character called Shirley obviously as an avatar of Shirley Jackson, and also then taken the protagonist, Eleanor Vance, and made them subsidiary characters, and then made, um, given the series a male protagonist. It worked. It's a good program. It's a good show. But it seems like a needless adjustment to one of the greatest haunted house stories of the 20th century, to me. It does. I feel like as it stands on its own, it is a brilliant series about Haunted House. And I don't think they needed the reference to Shirley Jackson. I think if you'd have just had it on its own without any Shirley Jackson imagery at all, it would have worked just as well. It was it was a good story, but it, it just wasn't the Jackson it's story very, that I know and love. Very, very strange that the Owen Wilson version was actually closer in plot to, uh, to the Netflix version. <laughs> well, yeah, it was... It was really good. Like I say, the bit where Theo and Nell talk over Mrs. Dudley, that was in that. And one of the things, because when I rewatched The Haunting recently, and I had all that bit where Nell and Theo run through the house and they've got the hall of mirrors and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, that really grates on me. But then when I reread The Haunting of Hill House, literally just yesterday, and it has this bit where it describes the house as carnival-esque. And yeah. I was like, oh, well, I can see where they, they got it from. Do you know what? Um, exactly. It's much less silly than we gave it credit for that version, I think. Well, I think it is very silly. I think it's over the top. I don't like the fact that they've got in this whole motherly role for Nell. Because like I said, one of the things about The Haunting of Hill House is, is Nell actually turning out to be as much of a burden to others as her mother was to her. I think that's one of the conflicts and interpretations. Yeah. Um, and I know that she does express some sadness that there are two young girls in the house that obviously you know grew up alone and then fought each other over the crockery again more <laughs> crockery it just yeah introducing that whole motherly i must save the children element was was not really it for me in the yeah that's I think not, that's it's, it. it's not very oh nail is it um <laughs> not quite no and um, that terrible painful bit at the end of the christian symbolism where she comes down from the uh from being killed and she's in the crucifix pose and you're like oh that's just oh, shit, so painfully obvious oh, um no. but i i must admit i thought Catherine zeta jones's theo was very good i i thought she was the bitchy kind of 
two-faced element that I, well, she's I sort of perfect her. casting for it I can't really yeah. remember anything about her in it but she's definitely if you can envision a casting for it that would be very good horror itself I think has been very much a kind of it's been it's been a sort of also ran as as genres go for for quite some time it's you know it's part of that great sort of like big catch-all genre which people it's a big word that people use to describe things that they just don't think are very good. And, but horror as Shirley Jackson shows is just, is an an absolute, you know, like direct line into, in, into the human experience. And she, she's one of the best writers that I think I've ever encountered. Um, And I'm really glad that I got to do this podcast all about her because I feel like, um, you know, as 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 much as people acknowledge, um, as much as people acknowledge horror, the sophistication and the, and and the subtlety of what she does, it's often like you have to fall into one camp or another. You have to be horror or you have to be literary. And I think she walks that line. She crosses that boundary with grace and um and 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 weird uh, weird ambiguity, <laughs> as is her want. Um, so I'm really glad I got to talk about her, however, um, however incoherently, because unfortunately you can't say anything definitive about Shirley Jackson because you just have to backtrack on yourself and contradict yourself in a second's time anyway, because that's who she is, right? Absolutely. <laughs> what we can all agree on is that Shirley Jackson is a master, or should that be mistress, of the horror genre in her own particular way. If there are tropes in her writing, it is because she created them. In some ways, she's brilliant and analytical and in others, she defies explanation. Thank you so much, Katrina, for joining us. It has been an amazing episode and great to chat to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the Shirley Jackson nomination. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. 